Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Lewis Carroll's Photographs of Children. My first guest is Diane Wagner, the author of Lewis Carroll's Photography and Modern Childhood, which is new from Princeton University Press. The book examines how Carroll's photographs of children helped inform changing English ideas about childhood during the Victorian era. Amazon offers it for $60. Lewis Carroll, of course, was the pen name of Charles Dodson. On the second segment, Paul Farber joins me to discuss Monument Lab and their recent work in St. Louis. But first, Diane Wagner, after the break. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Explore art from home. Explore art from home with Getty. Visit online exhibitions such as Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, and Bauhaus, Building the New Artist. Watch videos about art making and conservation as well as hundreds of art history talks. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. And listen to interviews with artists, writers, curators, and scholars to hear about their current projects and concerns. Learn more at getty.edu art. And we're back. Diane Wagner, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for having me. In the mid-1850s, Charles Dodgson, um, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll, of course, was a collegiate math teacher who had two hobbies for which he's become more famous than you know he became for being a math teacher, writing and the then-young medium of photography. Why would it have made sense, if you will, for someone with Dodgson's background in Victorian England, England to have three interests, teaching, children's literature, and photography, kind of concurrently? Well, I think that he had a fair amount of leisure time. You know, he was working as a mathematical lecturer. After he finished his schooling at Oxford, he stayed on at Christchurch as a student. And although it certainly kept him busy, he was a very ambitious man, and he wanted to make his mark. He was very taken with the art world. He was a voracious reader. So I think that it was very natural for him to want to, you know, sort of have his hands in many pies, so to speak. You know, he certainly was, uh, I think, dedicated to mathematics, but he just had such wide ranging interests that I don't think it could have contained him, him, contained his imagination in any way. And he realized, I think, that he did not have much talent as an artist in terms of his draftsmanship. And so photography came along, and here it was, this exciting new medium with all these new possibilities. And I think he was very taken with it. And it certainly, I think, was attractive to the way his mind worked. You know, he definitely had a logician's mind, and he was fascinated by all kinds of intricacies and so on. And so, you know, I think just photography, probably the process itself was fascinating to him in the same way, at the same time that it also offered him this way of making pictures. And he found that he was very good at it, that he was very skilled at making sensitive, beautiful portraits of people and, and specifically children. Was there any kind of broad current in Victorian life that would have made teaching children's literature and photography, particularly the photography of children, understandably overlapping interests? You know, I don't know about that because he was very exceptional, I think, in how passionate he was in terms of photographing children. I mean, I talk in the book about you know, sort of comparing him to many of his contemporaries, many of whom did make portraits of children, but nobody worked the way that he did. And I think, 
it's more that I would see his fascination with children, that both his writing and his photography were ways of experiencing that and manifesting it. So why were the Victorians so interested in childhood and how did they come to understand it as a distinct phase of life? Well, it's, you know, sort of go, it does go back a little bit more to the 17th and 18th centuries, but it's really in the 19th century that this becomes very codified. And I think there's a whole host of reasons for that. Certainly it comes out of the legacy of the romantics who, you know, created this idea of the natural, the innocent child. You know, people are writing novels, which is very much about the details of personal life. And you start to see this idea that the sort of origin of the self really starts in childhood, that people are this aggregation of characteristics over time, and that childhood becomes that original origin moment for the person. So when you have this division then between your childhood and your adult, your an adulthood, your ch- childhood becomes this site of nostalgia and this site of loss. And it also becomes this very, very precious, very important time. So you see, and then you see that in this flourishing of all these things that become distinctive for children, children's dress, children's writing, of course, which Dodson was very much a part of in writing Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, specific games for children, and so on, even in the sort of way in which the education system becomes codified, where, you know, children are supposed to be spending time in school. And the medical arena, they start to develop the idea of pediatrics and child psychology and all of this stuff, you know, gets tied in together. Now, of course, then you have a little bit of a difference between what the experience of the middle class child is who's spending their time being educated versus the working class child who, you know, is still spending time laboring and so on. And then there are many laws that get start that start to get put in place to try to protect all children from these kinds of uh, situations of hard labor and so on. You mentioned that Dodson was uh, an art lover and that he paid a lot of attention to art, both of his time and in the decades and centuries before his time. In fact, the book is quite richly illustrated with paintings as well as photographs. Could you point to some of the paintings, including from, from the 18th century, that probably informed him and his approach to photography and to photographing children? Well, he certainly, as I said, was an avid fan of art. And he went to, you know, every exhibition he could. He traveled to London very frequently from Oxford. You know, so he went to the 1857 Manchester Art Treasures exhibition, where a lot of 18th century paintings were on display. So we know that he was familiar with them. One of them, for example, would be Reynolds, The Age of Innocence, which I have illustrated in the book. He, you know, he made a parody of it with a hippo in a family magazine as a young man. So, you know, we, we know that he knew those paintings and was familiar with them and really had absorbed the way in which they were presenting childhood as this you know, entity that was associated with nature, you know, pink and white, beautiful, and so on. And of course, I I do want to mention, of course, that, of course, Dodson's entire definition of childhood is based on, you know, being white, middle class, Anglo-Saxon, Christian, and so on. So, you know, of course, he's defining child, he's making this definition of childhood in this very universal sense, but of course it's predicated on this very, very specific milieu in which he lived. And indeed the people he knew generally. His interest in painting was by no means unique among British photographers. Why were so many British photographers so interested in painting? Other than that several of them were failed painters. (laughs) Well, yes, a number of them trained as painters, of course, and then moved on to photography. And then you have Julia Margaret Cameron, you know, who's so in, involved in the social milieu of pre-Raphaelites and aestheticism and so on. But, you know, I, photography comes along. And of course, what are you going to do as a photographer? You're going to look at the conventions of art that are already established. And that's in, in painting. So you're going to be thinking about that as you yourself are trying to create what you think of as an artistic photograph. And these photographers that we're mentioning were very invested in the idea 
of photography as an art form, not just as a means of documenting the world. It's always interesting to me how English art historians have understood that relationship, whereas on this side of the pond, we've been enormously slower to investigate and understand the relationship between 19th century painting and photography. One of the things you do in the book is to approach Dodson chronologically rather than through an author or historian or a curator-built construct such as theme or, or subject. What does approaching his photographic oeuvre chronologically unlock or suggest? Well, for me, it really showed the way his approach changed over time. And I think, in fact, his work falls into these different themes through the chronology. And I think you see that in uh, the way the book is organized and how, you know, each chapter is not specifically about a certain decade. It's about a certain theme or subject that he approached at a certain time. The first image of Dodson's you reproduce in the book is probably his most famous image. What is it and what makes it such an enduring picture? It is his portrait of Alice Little, a little girl who was the muse for Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, uh, made in 1858, posing as a beggar child, or as it is sometimes referred to as the beggar maid, uh, which is a reference to the story of uh, King Cafetua and the beggar maid. And I think when you see one of the most beautiful prints that he made of this, particularly the one that's at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is the one that I reproduce in the book, it's just heart-stoppingly gorgeous. Alice herself, you can see, was just a very, very photogenic model. I think that you feel this energy between Alice and Dodson, the photographer. So there's that on the one hand. It's also very striking because she's in these beggar clothes. And if you look closely at it, you can see that it does reveal some parts of her of her body. You know, so you have that on the other hand. For me, I just, it's her expression on her face. You know, it's so compelling. And you just want to know, I, I think, how did this photograph come about? How did it come about? Dodson took a photography in 1856. And I believe that's about the same time that he met the little children. The little children were the daughters of the Dean of Christ Church, Henry George Little. And of course, Dodson was a student at Christ Church. And by student, that, that was the official term for it, which is the equivalent of being a fellow at other colleges. So he, so he was living in Christ Church at the time. Little came in as the new dean. He moved into the deanery on Tom Quad in Christ Church with his very large family. And Dodson very quickly met uh, the oldest children, Harry Little, the um, oldest brother, and then Lorena, the oldest daughter. And then not too long after, met the next, the girls next in line, Alice and Edith. And he very quickly struck up a friendship with them. And that friendship included starting to photograph them. And he photographed them from about 1857 to 1860. Their friendship remains a little bit shrouded in mystery because, of course, some of Dodson's diaries are missing. Um, Dodson For kept... Four years worth. <laughs> yes, four years worth. Dodson kept a diary his entire adult life. And at some point after he died, four volumes of them went missing. Two of them are the, some of the earliest diaries, but then two volumes chronicle the periods of 1858 to 1862. And those are some of the most critical years of his friendship with the little children, and also some of very critical years of photographing because they were some of his most prolific years of photographing. And then when his diary resumes in 1862, He's still very actively seeing, spending time with the Littles, entertaining them, going on excursions with them. It's that it's at that point that he uh, starts to spin the tale about what would become Alice's adventures in Wonderland. But he's not photographing them anymore. And then there's this mysterious page cut out of the diary in 1863, where the diary entry is cut off, where he says something about wanting to have the children to either be to be photographed. And what I think happened was he had just opened a new studio in Oxford. 
he had not had a dedicated studio before this time. And I think he wanted to have the Littles come over and be photographed, and Mrs. Little must have objected. And there seems to have been something between Dodson and Mrs. Little in relation to the photography, uh, which is why he didn't really photograph them after 1860, even though he was continuing to photograph many, many other children in the Christchurch and Oxford community at the time. You know, he was very, would have been very actively known as somebody who was photographing all these children. But, you know, we just, we don't have enough documentation to really know what happened. It's then thought that this page that was cut out of the diary recounted some kind of rupture with the little children because a little bit later there's another entry where he talks about how he's kept aloof from the littles for several months and he sort of does kind of resume his friendship with the littles a little bit but after that it really gradually diminishes over time there was famously this scrap of paper discovered among the Dodson family uh, papers that summarized what was on that cut page which says that Dodson learns that people were thinking that he was courting the Little's governess, Miss Prickett, or maybe even Lorena, the oldest sister. We just don't know. There may have been gossip circulating around. Other biographers have thought that, you know, perhaps Mrs. Little was getting uncomfortable with Dodson's possible feelings towards the little girls and so on. But of course, this has led to a whole cottage industry of, you know, spinning out what were Dodson's real motivations with the littles and so on. But ultimately, it's it's really a mystery what what actually happened. But you can, if you look at the dates of the photographs, we do know that at some point about around in 1860, he seemed to have stopped photographing them. While we're in the diaries, I guess the two poles of understanding of these pictures from the late 50s and early 60s are kind of cult of the, you know, Victorian cult of the child on one hand, and as you call it in the book, a kind of post-Freudian sublimated desire on the other hand. Where do you, where do you fit in, in in that polarity? I think I fit in somewhere in between. I certainly feel that Dodson had an intense emotional response to children. Obviously, he did, given what we know of his life and activities, you know, throughout his whole life. And he clearly had a special feeling towards the little children, because in the diaries, you know, they are the ones that just appear constantly and you know, for during that period of time. And although he goes on to have many close friendships with other children, they just never, never quite seems to have the intensity that he had with the little children. I can't speak about what his innermost desires were. I certainly, you know, I mean, there's a whole chat, we'll get to this later. Of course, there's a whole chapter about how he liked to photograph Girls in the Nude, which occurs later on, you know, well after he's not really interacting with the little children anymore and after they've grown up. I didn't feel that I could responsibly try to read into the photographs what Dodson's inner desires were. I certainly agree with his all of his biographers that he never did anything that we would consider to cross the line into some kind of abuse of, of children. But they also clearly were sort of the emotional focus of, of his life. He also took lots of photographs of boys in, in these years, in the 1860s. How were they similar to and how did they differ from the pictures that featured girls? Yeah, so that's the subject of the next chapter after the, well, it's actually the third chapter of the book after the one on the little photographs. And yes, at the time that he was photographing the little children, he was also making trips to a preparatory school called Twyford Preparatory School, which, which still exists. And he was visiting that because a friend of his from Oxford, George William Kitchen, had become the headmaster there. Some other friends of his at Christchurch were masters. They were teaching there. And also his younger brother, Edwin, was also a student there, as well as his cousin, Jimmy Dodson. He 
often traveled there with uh, Reginald Suffy, who was another friend of his, who is actually the man who taught him how to photograph. Suffy had taken up photography before Dodson did. And Dodson did a series um, in 1858 of photographing a lot of the boys at Twyford School. And he, he produced really as many photographs of the Twyford School boys as he did of the little children. And I make the argument that he was really photographing boyhood in a very different way than he was girlhood. Girlhood was something that was kind of other to him, whereas boyhood was something that he himself had experienced. And this was at a time when boys' education was undergoing a really profound transformation. Dodson himself had gone to school at rugby, and he had arrived there just a few years after the death of Thomas Arnold, who had very famously reformed rugby. And then these all these sort of reforms at rugby had trickled out to all the other public schools in England that educated young boys. And I should say that Twyford was a preparatory school for boys to go to before they went to rugby, Eton, Marlborough, places like that. So the boys at Twyford were a little bit younger than the boys before you go to rugby. And Dodson was very interested in what Kitchen was doing at Twyford because he makes these very interesting entries in his diaries where he, he talks about, you know, how pleasant it is at Twyford. He clearly himself, when he was at rugby, had a pretty miser very miserable time. He doesn't write about it very much. There's one entry in his diary where, you know, he says something along the lines of, you know, that nothing would ever, ever he would never, ever want to repeat those years at rugby. He mentions in relation to another boys school that he visits, how the boys have some privacy at night because they had their own private cubicles to sleep in as opposed to a big dormitory. And he says, you know, how wonderful it would have been not to have been annoyed at nighttime. And so on. so clearly we can surmise that he was bullied at rugby. And but at the same time, these what these boys schools were really doing and what what Thomas Arnold had was really doing in the kinds of reforms that he had instituted in them was this idea of inculcating English manliness into these young boys. And one of the remarkable things was that Tom Brown's School Days, which is by uh, Thomas Hughes, was published in 1857. So it's published right at the exact time that Dodson starts visiting Twyford School and when he goes and photographs there. And Tom Brown School Days is really sort of the epitome of this expression of what the British public school system was supposed to do in ushering these young boys from boyhood into English manhood. And Thomas Hughes himself had gone to rugby school and had even gone to Twyford himself as his preparatory school. So there are all these interconnections there. And what I see Dodson doing is when he's photographing these boys, he's very much looking at them as what he himself had been as a young boy. And the way that he photographs them is, you know, they're, it's the boys together. They're not in the sphere, uh, the domestic sphere. They're not in the sphere of the family the way the girls are when he's photographing them. Let me jump in for just a second. When, when you say he's photographing them together, you mean literally as group portraits. I mean, there are a lot of group portraits of boys and there just really aren't of, of the girls. Right. Girls are photographed in groups, but they're with their, that's with their siblings. Those are sister groups. These are boys that come from different families. They are together in the boys' school. Yes. And he's very interested in photographing them in groups and not only just in groups, but even in groups that we associate with schools. You know, he photographs the cricket team. And so, so, you know, these are some of the earliest school photographs and team photographs, one might say. And what you, you see this really pronounced difference between the postures that uh, the girls might be in in their photographs versus the boys. And that's so much about what the boys are going through at school because they're basically under surveillance at all times, whether it's from the masters or whether it's from the older boys onto the younger boys with the system of prefects and fags. And everything is about inculcating this manliness into them. And you see the, the posture, their postures of the sort of discipline 
that you can read into their postures that you just don't see in the photographs of the girls. So I'm really making the argument that his photographs of girls, again, are very much about childhood being another country, being something separate, other, whereas the photographs of boys is really about that connection between childhood and adulthood. It's about development. Like many British photographers of the time, Dodson is presenting constructed scenes. Sometimes he's doing that by dressing up his models, as he did with Alice when he dresses her in rags in 1858. Sometimes he's showing a studio artifice, as he does in uh, in a picture of a, a St. George and the Dragon, which is impossible to look at really without laughing. And then, of course, as is as was probably required by law, there are lots of Shakespeare references. What is the attraction of constructed scenes? Well, again, I think some of it goes to contemporary painting. You know, remember this is at the time that uh, history painting is very in vogue, particularly with the pre-Raphaelites. So in fact, it's almost a marker of being very modern and avant-garde to make a, a, a subject that draws on history or literature. So I think on the one hand, he's he's doing that. At the same time, I think... You know, there's that sort of entertainment of children, the play, the fun of dressing up. And the other thing we haven't mentioned is Dodson was not only an avid fan of contemporary art, but he was an incredibly ardent fan of the theater. And he went to the theater all the time when he was in London or anywhere, actually, where he could seek out theatrical entertainments. He made friends with with many child actors and adult uh, actors and very, you know, followed it very, very closely. And so some of this dressing up and staging pictures for the camera was was related to what he was seeing on the stage. The last chapter deals with, but does not much reproduce, Dodson's interest or practice in portraying nude girls. I guess the most obvious question is why? Well, I think that's probably a complicated question, but, you know, he really saw the girl child as the epitome of beauty and innocence, or at least that's what he professed. And to make images of them in the nude was sort of the the, the logical endpoint of that. This was also a, a moment within the art world where the nude was becoming much more prominent. You know, so you had painters like Leighton, Burne Jones, and so on. So you started to see the nude in just contemporary painting more. You know, I really, certainly on the surface of things, the way Dodson talked about it was that it was a spiritual experience to be, have this privilege to, for the children to feel as comfortable enough with him to pose in the nude. And I think it was, it was clearly something that excited him a lot. And I probably shouldn't use that word because again, I can't speak to what he really felt deep inside. But I certainly in the chapter argue just it's very apparent how much he wanted to make these images. And I know you mentioned that there are not very many of them reproduced, but that's because not that many of them survive. I have reproduced all five of the known photographs of girls in the nude that we know that have survived. And then there also is an assortment of some drawings and things like that as well. But you see in the letters that he wrote to parents, the letters that he wrote with his illustrators, how much he wanted to collect these images, to have these images. And I should mention, too, that even after he stopped photographing in 1880, he continued to make images of girls in the nude by having sketching sessions, which he usually arranged with uh, one of his illustrators, Emily Gertrude Thompson who illustrated the last of his books, Three Sunsets and Other Poems, uh, which was published posthumously right after he died in 1898. But they had a longstanding friendship throughout the 1880s and 1890s, which very much involved making images of girls in the nude. She would make them for him. They would get together and sketch them. And it, it clearly was something that he was very, very invested in. 
he dies in 1898. Does he continue making pictures until the end? He does not continue making photographs. He stops making photographs in 1880. And there's never really a moment where he says, I'm quitting photography. It's clear from a few letters within the early 1880s that he's still thinking about making photographs. He's still thinking about working in a studio on the roof of Christchurch, which he had uh, had built in 1871. But it seems as though he just got taken up with other things. And at this point, it was much easier to just go to a professional photography studio and get images made. And 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 he certainly did that. He saw a number of his child friends, instead of taking photographs of them himself, he would take them to professional studios. And then he would, then those photographs would be added to his archive, his collection. I was just going to say that happened across the medium in the 1880s and 90s as early photographers saw the medium changing, the technology of the medium changing, and just kind of collectively wondered, what am I doing here? Exactly. I mean, because, you know, Dodson had started in 1856 and he had stuck with the same process the entire time. You know, he never moved on to gelatin dry plates from the wet collodion glass negative and so on. And yes, you know, you see this real flourishing of photography in the 1850s, 1860s. And then as it becomes more commercialized, mass produced, 1870s, 1880s and, and onward, that's exactly right. You see that first generation or second generation of photographers kind of falling away from it. So Dodson's very, he is part of that, but he never loses his interest in the visual image, the visual object. So it's really about doing it in other ways, even if he's not making photographs himself. He even illustrated an edition of, of Alice um, in Wonderland. He did, although that is the original manuscript that he made for Alice as a gift, you know, in the 1860s and then presented to her. And then he goes back and he publishes it in facsimile much later on. Diane Wagner, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sheldon Museum of Art at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln began in 1888 as a community-organized fine arts society. Within months of forming, the group audaciously presented its first exhibition, borrowing a 12-by-18-foot canvas by Carl Theodore von Pliotti from the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So many people traveled to Lincoln to see the work, on view in the federal courtroom of the city's post office, that the superintendent of the Burlington Railroad scheduled additional trains throughout the state. Today, Sheldon Museum of Art houses nearly 13,000 objects in diverse media in a landmark Philip Johnson building. Sheldon treasures a selection of some of the collection's most important and best-known objects by artists including Louise Bourgeois, Arthur Dove, Barnett Newman, Mark Rothko, Kay Sage, and Stanley Whitney, is on view through December 31st. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, featuring the work of more than 60 Black artists who defined Black identity, creativity, activism, and social responsibility over two decades. Soul of a Nation explores what it meant to be a Black artist in America during two revolutionary decades, from the 1960s in the Civil Rights Movement to the early 1980s in the emergence of identity politics. See works by pivotal artists like Betty Saar, Romare Bearden, Elizabeth Catlett, Roy de Carava, David Hammonds, Lorraine O'Grady, and Faith Ringgold. Accompanying the exhibition is a dynamic lineup of virtual programming. Artist talks, discussions, films, and more. Now on view through August 30th. Visit mfah.org soul. Welcome back. Next up, Monument Lab's Paul Farber. Farber joins me to talk about a recent two-year research residency at the Pulitzer Foundation for the Arts in St. Louis. Farber is the co-founder of Monument Lab, a Philadelphia-based public art and history studio that cultivates conversations around civic monuments. Next week, on June 20th through the 22nd, Farber and Monument Lab will be presenting recent work done as part of that residency and discussing the question, how would you map the monuments of St. Louis with residency participants and colleagues? As a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, the program will be presented over three days via Zoom. We'll have links to all three days' worth of programmings on manpodcast.com. Registration is free, but you do need to register to get the Zoom link. One more note, Monument Lab has a fantastic podcast, one of my absolute favorites. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com as well. <laughs> 
Paul Farmer, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. The title of the project you did with the Pulitzer and in collaboration with Washington University is Public Iconographies. What is a public iconography? How broad is, how, how usefully broad is the phrase? <laughs> well, your Monument Lab is a public art and history studio, and we're based in Philadelphia. We have been working with some amazing collaborators around the country, and that includes the Pulitzer Arts Foundation and Washington University in, in St. Louis. And a few years ago, in 2018, the Pulitzer was doing a exhibition called Striking Power, and it was about iconoclasm in, in public art that dates back thousands of years. And um, they asked us to come to St. Louis and think about a research residency and what kind of questions would we want to explore with collaborators on the ground. And of course, you know, the moment you arrive in St. Louis, the, the icons of the city greet you, you know, and of course, many of them are, are iconic. The Gateway Arch, of course, looms not just in the skyline, but on every single map and um, many corporate logos and all over the city. And it just immediately kind of brought up for us this question of what is visible, what is legible, and what other kind of histories or stories are part of the landscape or, or not there, but nonetheless part of public consciousness. And so the idea was to, you know, at first thought about like, could we do a project that made the arch disappear even momentarily? And, and you know, it was a little bit of a, of a cheeky idea, but the spirit, I think, behind it was to think about what are we missing when we just look up at the symbols that are elevated in public consciousness, but also what are the stories that are subjugated? And especially, you know, in this moment that we're in around the reckoning over monuments, it's, it's both the kinds of ways that monuments have participated in the elevation of narratives and systems of white supremacy but also the, the erasure, or at least ignoring, of other really important and nourishing symbols and stories of resistance, of freedom, of liberation over generations of time. And so the idea of, of the, the project was to think about the symbols that we've inherited, but also the ones that we might create when we change our, our, our framework. So what counts within the framework of public iconography? Obviously, the arch is is an icon and maybe the sculpture of King Louis in front of the St. Louis Art Museum, if it's still there <laughs> by the time this airs. <laughs> what counts as a public iconography? We define monument as a statement of power and presence in public. And we do that because, of course, when we say monument, you're thinking about bronze, marble, kind of elevated representation, especially of a figure in history. But when we've done our research in Philadelphia, in Newark, in collaboration with our fellows, we know that people define monument in different ways. They think about other kinds of expression that is powerful, that resonates, but might not be rendered in those particular kinds of forms. And of course, if you have the time, the money, and the power to build a monument that's important to you, you do it. But if you don't have the time, the money, and the power, you gather around a monument that exists or you make your own. And that's a way that you amplify your presence and make your voice heard. And so in St. Louis, in our research, with a remarkable group of research associates, Derek Laney, M.K. Stallings, Liz Dykeman, and the team at the Pulitzer, we just asked people a question. How would you map the monuments of St. Louis? When we asked that question, it didn't foreclose what is or is not a monument or what fits or doesn't fit on the map. What you hear back is monuments include Cahokia Mound, other sites that remind us that St. Louis was a metropolis before the colonial era. You hear about the footprint of buildings that are no longer there, but nonetheless register in public memory, geological features, including the confluence. When you change your question about what matters and how people navigate around the space, you hear different answers. And I think what is so powerful about this project and, and others that we've worked on is when we hear from people how they see monuments, how they see landscapes, commemorative landscapes, um, you get a different story than if you just are looking for the official and the sanctioned. 
Yeah, St. Louis is relatively weak in the dude-on-a-horse monuments of the American Northeast and extremely rich in the Ted Drew's frozen custards. (laughs) You know, one of the things that really struck me, I had been to St. Louis before this project on a cross-country road trip over a decade ago, and something, you know, every, every city is segregated. Every single American city has the history of entrenched white supremacy embedded in it. And yet in St. Louis, there is something that caught my eye and and others have commented is this particular kind of defensive architecture, the ways that streets have ballards and have obstacles. Some of them are really ornate and made to be quote unquote beautiful. Others are more upfront, do not go down this street. And so what we found when we asked people to, to map monuments, of course, they might point to a statue or a beloved site because, of course, there's a lot of care and love and pride in the city and, and the county more broadly. But we also had a number of responses that pointed to the Del Mar Divide, you know, a street that marks a particular history of segregation in the city that's not just isolated in the past. It continues to play out. Let me jump in for a second. Del Mar runs through... St. Louis, roughly northwest to southeast. North of Del Mar is, and has been for decades, overwhelmingly black. And south of Del Mar, where Forest Park is, where St. Louis University and Wash U and downtown St. Louis are, are uh, overwhelmingly white. And so when someone, you know, fills out one of the Monument Lab forms at the Pulitzer, one of the events, and, you know, this is quoting one of the maps and and is included in our final research publication, which is a map in of itself. They asked for a monument that could, quote, best represent the racial history of white flight, segregationist gerrymandering, and the continued oppression of black and brown folks of, of St. Louis and the resources denied to them. So what would that monument look like? I think that when we're thinking about how to deal with not just the inheriting symbols of a bygone era and how to kind of quote-unquote update our monuments. We also have to kind of dig deep and think about a response like this is a reminder how symbols and systems are so intertwined and they live in the landscape, right? A monument is offering one story amongst many of a city's history. It gets a lot of spotlight. It gets a lot of attention, potentially. A map is very similar. It's just one story. And I think part of the idea of the project was to have us think about maps and monuments together as both kind of ways that power asserts itself and also how we can contest it and and push against established narratives that live in the landscape, but also in our minds. You mentioned that part of the project was inviting St. Louisans to contribute sites or in the case of the material that's included within the map drawings of monuments in in the city. Were there any places that you found people were, different people were contributing over and over again or, or places or geographies that pushed to the fore for you? You know, I think one of the most fascinating things that we learned in this process, our team, our research associates, the Pulitzer, that, of course, so we collected 750 hand-drawn maps that pointed to 1,044 places on the map, whether that place exists, I mean, you could drop a pin on it, or it was regional, it's the confluence, or it's uh, an entire neighborhood. And of course, the arch was the most cited place on the map, but fewer than half of the map makers included it. And just think about that, that when we've asked people in St. Louis at 46 different places, including the Gateway Arch National Park itself, which was one of our sites of collection over the summer of 2019, that a large portion of the the group of mapmakers included the arch, but over half did not. What does that tell you about your understanding of the city, whether as a lifetime resident or as someone who knows how important St. Louis is to the story of America, the the power of St. Louis and the challenges of St. Louis. Another thing that blew us away was that one in 10 sites that were included by map makers has been demolished or erased from the landscape. It's no longer there. You know, the Pruitt-Igoe housing projects as one example, but countless others 
black theaters that have been closed, other sites that still register in people's minds. And likewise, one in 10 sites are for monuments that don't yet exist, that people took the prompt of how would you map the monuments in St. Louis and just pointed out what was not there. You know, and that included statue dedicated to Red Fox. And I, I think in that, in that, in that one in particular, someone drew a picture of a figural statue and gave it a location, which was Red Fox's home. And you look at it fast, and if you know, we're not from St. Louis. We we worked with local collaborators, but we have to respect local knowledge and local expertise. But if you look at it fast, you say, Oh, let me go find that statue. And I think that that's something that's really important for us in a project like this, which is to imagine the past, present, and future of a city together and to not do it from just a top-down way. I think that is very typical, and maybe this is a skeptic in me, that design competitions may start with a problem, but they look for a single solution. And we do things differently with Monument Lab. We like to ask questions that have a multitude of answers and hear and learn from how people approach that question, whether they answer it directly, whether they break it apart, or they, whether they ask a different one or answer a different one. And so through this data collection and the map that we're producing with the Pulitzer, you know, we kind of want to, to highlight the fact that like monuments, no map is an authority in of itself. The power is in the process of gathering, listening, and trying to evolve. You mentioned two sites I want to specifically identify, especially for international listeners. Red Fox was an American comedian and actor who was born six or eight blocks north of where the Pulitzer is now. And Prude Igo is the, was the name of a federal housing development in central St. Louis, north of Del Mar, that became one of two or three, one of the two or three most notorious housing developments in, in the United States, the, the federal government, the city of St. Louis and the state of Missouri all quickly became disinterested in, in the people who, who lived there. The redevelopment of the site was torn down many decades ago, but the, the site itself continued until maybe five or 10 years ago. It's been the subject of uh, quite a bit of contemporary art in recent years, novelists too. So you mentioned the St. Louis public and and receiving over 750 proposals, if you will, about what should be considered. Just to put in context, you know, St. Louis is a city of about 400,000 people. So <laughs> your participation rate was extraordinarily high. Why was it important to you to include St. Louisans within the research project? You know, I think for, for Monument Lab, um, but also our, our collaborators who have been working on the ground for years in a number of capacities, thinking about history, but also thinking about the present, you can't do it without a participatory process. And participatory can mean a lot of different things. I think, you know, there's a, a sense that community engagement, for, for us, if you have a question that you don't know the answer to, that's a moment to reach out to members of the public and meet them where they are and value the fact that they have contributions that you can't find anywhere else. I, you know, I'm, I'm a scholar and a historian, um, but most of what I learn about monuments happens in conversation or happens on site. And I think it's important to, to really weigh this idea that process matters as much as outcome. We could have spent two years in residency and found really important archives and maybe even had a handful of conversations. But the, the joy and the purpose of the work that we do happen by engaging a team of researchers first, who I mentioned, Derek Laney, MK Stallings, and Liz Dykeman, who um, are, are brilliant researchers as well as poets and activists. And so just getting a sense from them first what the research would be and what kind of questions would go along with our central question and how do we present ourselves as a team in a way that we welcome people in, but we also make sure to push against some of the tendencies of research, which default to this idea of neutrality or objectivity, right? And I, I think about the work of Latanya Autry and Mike Murawski and the Museums Are Not Neutral movement, and we, we echo that. Re research is not neutral. So we have to think about 
you know, histories of race, racial and racist exclusion in statistic gathering. We, we were having a lot of these conversations early on, even about how we would set up shop at a farmer's market or at the Griot Museum, at, at the Griot Museum or I'm at the Gateway Arch. So that's the first step. And then the second step is saying, you know, we can't ask every single person in the city. We'd love to, but there have been, you know, from our standpoint, how many times do you hear about polling data about your city or about your country? I've never been asked. No one I know has been called. And yet every day I'm listening to polling data and telling me I'm um, as a bellwether about how I should feel or which direction I should move. And so we said, let's, let's play with that. All of research is performative. Let's do the work that's rigorous. Let's do the work that values and takes in the insights of social science, but we're an art project. And that's the power of the work that we do. I think it's really fascinating. One of our partners on the project at WashU, professors Jeff Ward and David Cunningham, utilized the data that we gathered with the Pulitzer for their introductions to sociology um, and African-American studies class. And they used it as data. And I you know, remember going to the site with our, our wonderful collaborators at the, at the Pulitzer, Kristen Fleischman, Josh Stolen, and, and talking with the students and figuring out both a way to value this as research that you could utilize like any other kind of archive or research or data, but also using it to problematize the very idea of research and what it can and cannot tell you. And so again, just to bring it full circle, it's really inspiring, but it's also a form of dedication to, to the pursuit of ideas that you can find really amazing things in archives, but you also have to recognize that every archive is full of its silences. And, you know, I think that's part of the, the motivation here is that we have to study the landscape and study history while also addressing the the gaps in the story and trying to respond in kind. That was my next question. We, we've already talked a little bit about how St. Louis is a fascinatingly long-standing site of conflict, whether it's between Union and Confederacy in the Civil War, segregation in the last, you know, hundred years of American urban life. But and, and you mentioned Cahokia Mounds earlier, the the prehistoric site to the east of the Mississippi River, literally visible from from the Missouri side of the river. But how do you address or do you try to address absence? So take, for example, the Missouri and Osage tribes, which lived in the St. Louis region um, into the 1820s, but have been almost totally absent from the site for 200 years now. There are uh, there are no designated tribes, Indian tribes, in the state of Missouri today, although there certainly are Native Americans living in, in, in the state and in the St. Louis region. So how do you or do you approach the Missouri and Osage presence and now absence? Something that we have on our, our final map, the printed version that will be available through the Pulitzer, we say maps like monuments are impermanent and incomplete. And I think... For, for this project, a number of people responded to, in one sense, a way to mark the contributions of the indigenous peoples to the region that we now call St. Louis, but also to call attention to the erasure and the ongoing oppression of indigenous people and connect those to other struggles, right? And I think part of, part of the idea of thinking about monuments and maps Something that we keep hearing from our artist collaborators is that you must balance presence and absence. There is not a way to simply find a spot and fill it. It's one of the reasons why I'm skeptical when uh, even a, you know, a, a monument is toppled and we're glad that a harmful racist symbol is removed from the public sphere. The conversation often goes very fast. Well, who will replace it? And when we have conversations, whether it's with our fellows around the continent or, you know, collaborators, or I even think about the maps that we've learned from in, in St. Louis, the conversation is not what to replace it with, but to really rethink what a monument is supposed to be doing. No monument is permanent. Monuments have the aura of permanence, but it requires maintenance and mindsets to keep them up. And so one of the things that I think to just respond back to your question 
is to understand that this is not a city like any city that's a blank slate. There's no neutral public space. So what is going to be our ethos about land? What are ways that we can think about monuments not as, I mean, this is my hope for the future, that monuments aren't just tools of those in power to exert dominance, but instead thought about as spaces to pilot new approaches to belonging on the land. What would it mean to not only take down a monument, but repatriate the land to a local indigenous people? What would it mean to think about how monuments and other kinds of architecture have participated in the active forms of, of segregation in the city? And then think about other ways that you can repair and redress from that standpoint. So, you know, I appreciate your question because I think it's not just about what you see on a map like any map you could pick up at the airport or, you know, see on a t-shirt or a mug that celebrates the symbols. How do you balance your pride with the trauma of the landscape and the people who have inherited it? And can you remake or reshape the way that we've received history today? So on Monday, July 20th, the Pulitzer will be hosting a Zoom program because, of course, we now live our lives on Zoom. And that program will feature you and your Monument Lab colleagues and various other participants, such as the artist Lauren Woods, uh, Wash Hughes, Jeff Ward, who you uh, mentioned a moment ago, Ziana Bryant, a student activist and community, community organizer with whom you've worked for a while now. And you'll be talking about how monuments function with within society. This is an unusual way of doing kind of a I mean, and inevitably, given the pandemic, unusual way of doing a presentation. What is it you hope people will understand from the program? And does doing it digitally offer you something that doing it in person might not have? <laughs> yeah, I, we're talking about a project that was so fundamentally connected to face-to-face -face encounters, is modeled after and and lived out the kind of Monument Lab methods of being face-to-face -face whenever we can. And respecting local knowledge and expertise while building strategy, tactic, and new ways of thinking about monuments across cities. You know, every time we've come to St. Louis over the last two years, it's been such a inspiring and, and galvanizing time because of the way that when we meet people who've been at work for years, whether it's the people who work to campaign to take down the Confederate monument in Forest Park or the Columbus monument in um, Tower Grove Park that was just dismantled a few weeks ago. There's been work going on for years by activists, by artists. And so we just had the opportunity and the gift to be able to learn from them at each stage. So we were looking forward to coming back full circle. And of course, the plans to to launch this map had to be you know, delayed. What I think has happened in the meantime um, is, of course, the global movement in defense of black lives and the fight against police brutality and systemic racism has yet again brought monuments into the, the focus. So it's an opportunity to have a conversation about St. Louis and also have a conversation about the country. I would argue already, whether we're thinking about the Ferguson uprisings or other important events that what happens in St. Louis impacts and affects the national story. We get to do it in, a, in a, a way that is really exciting, really lucky to be in dialogue, of course, with our, our local thought partner, Professor Jeff Ward, um, but with the artist Lauren Woods and organizer Zyana Bryan. It's just an opportunity to think about art, activism, and resistance. And just to give a, an extra acknowledgement, something I want to say is that whenever you see a monument coming down, whether you see it on the news or you see it on your Instagram feed, just understand that years and years of organizing, of art making, has gone into that moment. And so when you read a headline that says, mayor decides or city decides to take down a monument, not only, you know, or the monument has, has been taken down, watch for the passive voice and just think like, who are the people who made this possible? Zyana Bryant, one of the panelists of the July 20th event with the Pulitzer, she was a high school student in Charlottesville, Virginia, and she started a petition to take down the Robert E. Lee statue and rename Lee Park as a high school student, as, as a young black woman in 
Charlottesville. And Charlottesville is, is now one of the epicenters of commemorative justice, of monumental justice. And it's important to cite her and cite her work, but also see her in context as one of the people around the country who've been pushing for change, pushing for an understanding of the symbols and systems of injustice, but also the pathways toward remediation and redress. So we're just really excited to be able to be in dialogue with them and have it be a part of a week of critical map making and thinking about data toward monumental justice. There'll be a data workshop with our St. Louis team and our research director, Lori Allen, and, and other events with the idea that if you're in St. Louis or you're of St. Louis or care about St. Louis, this will be an event and a week to be able to plug in. But if you're thinking about your city, you're thinking about monuments, you're thinking about the way that power lives or is mapped, this hopefully can be a blueprint for something that you're thinking about doing or maybe just an affirmation of what you're already doing to bring about change in mindsets and the landscape and, and push toward, toward justice. I wouldn't be a good former Missourian if I didn't ask you the most St. Louis question possible. Since at least the 1850s, St. Louis has been fascinated by, by its multiplicity. Uh, is it a northern city? Is it a southern city? Is it an eastern city? Or is it a western city? And for as long as I can remember, going back into the 1980s, I mean, the Post-Dispatch, the, 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 the main newspaper in St. Louis, was good for one big story on this every year within which St. Louis would hash this out. So in the process of both mapping and understanding extant monuments and in hearing from St. Louisans about imagined or hoped-for monuments, did you come to think of St. Louis as being northern, southern, eastern, western, and if you really want to cop out, none of the above? I, I don't want to um, fall in the cop out, but I'm going to say I really think of it, I think of St. Louis, I really think of St. Louis as a crossroads. And I think, you know, part of this is the mythology of the city as the gateway to the West. And I don't want to just reinscribe it, but I do get a sense in the ways that the city is is a crossroads, is a crossroads geologically. It's a, you know, just spending, I think spending time in St. Louis and a few other cities along a few other axes, Memphis, New Orleans, Chicago, get a sense of the way that the river structures north-south really profoundly. You know, I've driven across country and gone through St. Louis. I've, I've flown in from my home in Philadelphia. And so I also think of the, I think of it kind of really connected. When I travel by plane and I step off, or let me say that another way, when I when I was traveling by plane and, and kind of stepping out of the airport, you know, I felt like East Coast rhythms, like I was moving in a in a speed, in a way that felt very East Coast. But that is also me projecting. When I drove through in another way, or when I would drive through the city, I would see other things. I think you know, if anything, rather than isolating it to any one region, the reason I call it a crossroads because it's been so fundamentally shaped by migration ongoingly. And so to think of it as a place that is not static, is not isolated, but it's all about its connections is the way that for me personally, how I felt it. And and I think I that was echoed in a number of the maps, whether it's uplifting of, you know, figures who have, you know, experiences of migration um, where there are places of refuge and where there are places of vulnerability, like movement is really important. We've done projects in other cities where we are setting up in a public space and we're there for weeks or, or months. And our conversation with the Pulitzer in the beginning was actually meet people where they are. When I'm thinking about your question and I kind of pose another one, which is St. Louis as a city, St. Louis as a county is comprised of all of these kind of sites of belonging and sites of segregation, and they operate together. And so when you're thinking about the city, theorizing it, or just trying to, to maintain, and, and is your experience of belonging or is it of separation and segregation, and how do we address that in policy, in public consciousness, but also in our, in our monuments, and how are those things connected? It's just, it's just remarkable. You kind of get, you get a sense of 
what is happening around the country, what is happening around the county, around the city, and yet from any place you stand, or really any of the maps that we collected, is the multiplicity that stands out. It's the most American city, at least it is It is in my mind uh, and in my experience of it. Paul Farber, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. So appreciate it. Great talking to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.